I want to thank you all for your uh, cooperation and your understanding with the changes that we've made so that we can eliminate the distractions so that we can focus and, and worship our God. To be able to, uh, to close our eyes and see Him on the throne is a real blessing for those who are born again because Jesus said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And so to have the opportunity to be able to close our eyes and because God has revealed to us through His Word who He is and His very presence and how He's worthy to be praised and we can close our eyes and we can think back in the times where Isaiah said, and I saw His throne and I said, here I am, Lord, send me. And Stephen, as he was being stoned to death for refusing to renounce the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that He had been crucified and resurrected and He had saw His risen Savior, as he laid in that hole and as they dropped rocks on him, he looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And what a beautiful and wonderful sight that is to be able to see a glimpse of what God has in store for us. Next week in the message, we'll see the transfiguration of our Lord and Peter, James, and John catch a glimpse of what we have to anticipate. And we'll look at that in more detail. But to be able to to worship Him and to see Him as a blessing to those who have come to faith in Christ, to those who are born again, to hear His words and the conviction of His Spirit in our life is something that we take for granted as believers, but we need to recognize that the majority of the world does not have that privilege at this point to be able to see the very presence of God. So why don't we close and we'll open this time in prayer. Father, we just... uh, we pray that our, our songs, our lips, more importantly our attitude and our heart are pleasing to you as we praise you. God, we pray that all the distractions of our life and the visiting and the commotion and the noise that goes on, that we will, as your word tells us, to be still and know that you're God. And so, Lord, may our meditations of our heart may our prayers may our praise may our giving and our offerings uh, to you be an acceptable sacrifice in your sight and god may you bless and honor those who honor and praise you and we ask these things in christ's name amen the following story is told of four brothers who all left home and went on to college subsequently becoming very successful doctors and lawyers And years later, they were sitting around talking at dinner, and they discussed the Christmas gifts that they had sent to their mother who lived in a state far away from each of those those men. The first one said, I had a big house built for Mama this year. The second said, I had a $100,000 theater built in that house for her. The third said, well, I had a new Mercedes delivered to her house with a chauffeur to take her anywhere that she wanted to go. And the fourth one said, listen to this. He said, you know how mama loved reading the scriptures and you know too that she can't read anymore because she can't see very well. He said, well, I met a priest who told me about a parrot that can recite the entire Bible. It took 20 priests 12 years to teach him and all I had to do to buy that parrot was to pledge to contribute $100,000 a year for 20 years to the church. And he said, let me tell you something, it was worth it. All mama has to do is name a chapter and a verse, and the parrot will recite it in its entirety. Well, the other brothers were impressed, and they were waiting to find out the results of their gifts and how mama enjoyed those. And several weeks after Christmas, each of them got the following letters. It says, dear Milton, the house that you built is so huge, and I only live in one room, and I have to clean the whole house. Thanks anyway, love, Mama. The second brother, dear Marvin, I'm too old to travel. I stay home. I have my groceries delivered, so I never use the car. And the driver you hired, well, you know what? His political views are opposite mine. The thought was good. Thanks anyway, love, Mama. Dear Manny, you gave me an expensive theater with Dolby sound. It could hold 50 people, but all my friends are dead. I've lost my hearing. I'm nearly blind. I never use it. Thanks for the gesture just the same. Finally, dearest Melvin, you're the only one of my sons to have the good sense to give a little thought to your gift. That chicken was delicious. (laughs) You know, what's the point? Well, the point is, being nearly blind, Mama missed the obvious. You know, and the same is true of those who are spiritually blind. You know, their condition causes them to miss 
the obvious with regards to the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, in our ongoing study through Luke's eyewitness account of the life of of, uh, Jesus, the great question that Luke has set before his readers is this, who is Jesus? That really is the question, that not only is the question of the moment, the question of the day, but the question of eternity. You know, who is Jesus? If you'll recall from the uh, last message, uh, one such phrasing of the question came from Herod in response to the people's speculations. He said, and Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? Who is this man? Luke has repeatedly shown us through the multitude of signs that Jesus is no ordinary man, that he's the Lord of all creation. If you recall when Jesus stopped the storm and they were standing there as disciples looking at him and said, who then is this man that even the the winds and the waves should obey him? Who is Jesus? And that really is the question. This question was once again answered, not only is he Lord of all creation as we have seen, but it was answered once again by Jesus feeding 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. Literally, if you remember the account, Jesus kept handing out to his disciples, just kept handing them more bread, more fish, more bread, more fish, more bread, more fish. And by Mark's account, we realize that there were just 5,000 men, but possibly as many as fifteen to 20,000, including women and children. And that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient for our every need. And as we look at this, who is Jesus? The twelve disciples, the apostles, had something to think about as they lugged their twelve baskets around with them. Who is Jesus? And what difference does it make to you and me is really Luke's focal point. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 18 through 27, where Jesus asked the most important question that any of us will ever have to answer when he asked this question. But who do you say that I am? Luke 9, starting with verse 18, we pick up the account. And it says, And it came about that while he was praying, while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them, instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up again on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste the death until they see the kingdom of God. You know, in this passage, there's three truths that relate to genuine discipleship. You know, if you ask the question of yourself, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And what is it that God demands of those who wish to follow Jesus? That's really what we're going to focus on in this passage. But before we do that, we need need to look at what Luke points out to us that prior to asking this thought-provoking question, notice in verse 18, we're told that, and it came about that while he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. You know, Luke has often shown us that Jesus prayed. And it's a pattern that Luke points out for our benefit. Before every critical moment that we find in Scripture, we find Jesus taking time to pray. If you recall from his baptism, if you'll consider that at his baptism, we're told that Jesus was praying. Again, when his popularity began to increase, he would slip away by himself to pray in times of solitude with his Father. 
And before choosing the twelve, he prayed, considering that there were multitudes of people that were following him, and he prayed, which, which ones of these many people, which of the twelve that will carry this torch, the message of the gospel? And he prayed. You know, our, our passage before us, before asking his disciples this most important question, he prayed. We'll see next time as we look at the Mount of Transfiguration that Jesus prayed. And I think over and over again, it's emphasized for our benefit. And the example that Jesus gives is that it's important to pray. That God wants us to pray. That He wants us to come to Him with our needs. He wants us to go to Him with our concerns. He wants us to share with Him the things that are troubling us in life. The Bible says if any man lacks wisdom, and it's not if in case we don't or do, it's if and since it is so, let us go to God and ask of Him to give us wisdom. And He'll provide it generously and and above reproach. He'll never criticize any of us or send us away or shoo us away because He's too busy with other matters of the world. That our God is not, you know, He's not troubled by the multitude of prayers that could ascend to His ears at any one given time that He can comprehend and He can respond to each one of them individually. And how that's possible, I don't know, other than the fact that I see who our God is as He shares with us His capabilities. And it's no more difficult for me to believe that God hears my prayers than it is to understand that He holds the universe together, that He created you and me, that He sustains every one of us. So, you know, why is it so troubling to think that that God, can He really hear all of our prayers simultaneously? I guess it's just a question of your picture of God. How small is your God? See, as Luke lays out for us, you know, His God, His Savior is not small at all. And He's sufficient for all of our needs. You know, every one of us are troubled in life by things that go on and we need to go to God and ask what it is that you're doing. And I know that, you know, I've been in a similar situation in many areas of life and this new opportunity to go to God and pray and ask for wisdom and discernment and understanding when it comes to my physical health and what it is that God's trying to teach me and what he's trying to teach us and what he's trying to teach us most importantly about who he is. You know, and I don't understand how I can have a PET scan that says that I'm fine and then two weeks later have a CT scan that says that, you know, not only have the, is the nodule still there, but it's doubled in size and now there's a new one. And, and in a week from now, I've got surgery and they'll go in and cut those out of my lung. And, you know, I, you know, I don't understand that. I said, well, you know, if that test isn't going to show you what you need, then why did I have to go through it? <laughs> You know, I just, it's just a logical, practical thing. Hey, you're going to make me go through that test again? That's not a fun test. And if you're going to read and says, hey, you're, oh, you know what? It's calcium. It's scar tissue. It's, oh, you know what? No, it's not. And so, I, you know, I go to God as you go to God. And, and, and we all have these areas of our life that we don't understand. But I do understand what God reveals to me about him and that he loves us and that he has his plan and his program in mind the big picture and we're just a very small part of that but we praise him for the opportunities to be used by him in any way that he wants to use us and that's really what luke is going to bring us to our attention and jesus does as he as we consider what it really means to be a genuine disciple and follower of jesus but i emphasize and encourage that there's a reason that we can continue to see that jesus prayed because God wants to hear from us. And quite frankly, I don't know about you, but you know what? God tends to only hear from me whenever I need to go to Him. And I guess we need to go to Him more often, if not on our own behalf, but on the behalf of others. And so we praise Him for that. But we go to Him in prayer, and we know that He hears our prayers. And so we're excited about that. I look forward to... One day, when we see him face-to-face, understanding the things that are today dim, but when we see him, they'll become extremely clear. And if you've ever had that thought where it's like, you know what, I'm going to ask him. When I see him, I'm going to ask him. You know what, I I, I, I want to tell you right now, from what I get from Scripture, when I see him, none of these questions are going to (laughs) matter. It just won't matter. And uh, we'll then know him fully. So after praying, Jesus asked the disciples this question. Who do the multitudes say that I am? 
Who do the people say that I am? We note that Jesus didn't ask them what the rulers or priests had to say about him, but he asked, but what do the people have to say? What is the average Joe in the street? What does he have to say about me? You know, the average Hebrew on the street thought Christ was excellent. They thought highly of him. They said, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist came back after being beheaded by Herod that, you know, John came back. Others were saying Elijah because they recognized from Scripture that, you know, Elijah was taken away and one day that the prophets will come back and preach the powerful message of the gospel. And they thought maybe that Jesus was Elijah, a forerunner of the Messiah, but certainly not Messiah. They said one of the prophets of old has risen again. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he's Moses or maybe he's one of the other prophets. And it's interesting as we look at this that they had a very definitive idea of who Jesus was. He's a prophet, John the Baptist, a powerful man of God. But they didn't see him as Messiah. They didn't see him as God's promised Savior. They didn't see him as the Savior of the world. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And He will save His people from their sins. They didn't recognize Him as Messiah. And if you were to ask folks today the same question, and I think it would be a great thing for us to do, to be able to go into neighborhoods, knock on doors, and ask one simple question. Who is Jesus to you? Would the answers be much different? He's a prophet. You know, the millions who embrace Islam believe that Jesus was a prophet, perhaps even the greatest of prophets. But definitely not God. You know, and their miss has eternal consequences, eternal death instead of eternal life. Who is Jesus? There are some who would say that, you know what, Jesus never existed. That he's some fictional character that was made up and there's an old liberal heresy that Jesus is a product of wishful thinking or of imagination. Consider the words of fellow liberal Albert Schweitzer who summarized their foolishness in his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. He writes this, The Jesus of Nazareth who came forward publicly as Messiah who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his work its final consecration, never had any existence. He's a figure designed by rationalism, endowed with life by liberalism, and clothed by modern theology in a historical garb. It's interesting that today the deconstructionists, these scholars, so-called scholars of the Jesus Seminar, have moved increasingly toward that same position because there's nothing new under the sun. In addition, there are those who say that Jesus is a moral teacher. That he was a a wonderful human being who did great things for people. That he's a moral teacher, perhaps the most prevalent view of all. That he was a good man, even the best of men. And I would challenge you to ask those in your life that question, who is Jesus to you? And see the answers that you get. You know, millions of people hold this view despite the brilliant debunking given to it by Thomas Aquinas and most recently by by C.S. Lewis who wrote these words. He said, I am trying trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. He said, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Why did Jesus ask that question? The question of, what do the people say? Where was he going with this line of thinking? You know, on this occasion, as always, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Because by getting the disciples to rehearse what the general public was saying, he prepared them to make a confession that contradicted and surpassed the ideas of the people. If you'll notice, he says, but what, but who, in verse 20, do you say that I am? And the word but indicates in strong contrast to what you heard, in strong contrast to what you have just told me, in strong contrast to the idea that I am John the Baptist reincarnated, to the idea that I'm a prophet of old, to the idea that I'm just a great moral teacher, a good guy, all around guy, nice guy, in strong contrast to those ideas which, by the way, are wrong, Who do you say that I am? And I want to stop for a moment and emphasize that question to you as an individual. Who do you say Jesus is? It doesn't matter who your mom thinks he is, who your dad thinks he is, who your son or daughter or grandchild thinks he is. It doesn't matter who I think he is. It doesn't matter who your friends or family or co-workers or anybody. It really doesn't make any difference to you what anybody else thinks about Jesus. What matters is, who do you say that he is? Who is Jesus to you? And I believe there was a pause. And I believe there was some reflection. And I believe that the sufficiency of Christ and feeding the multitudes kind of clinched the deal as far as the apostles were concerned. They had seen enough. What else do we need to see to convince us of the identity of Jesus Christ? I can imagine they had wonderful conversations. Look, we've never seen anybody raise someone from the dead. We've never seen anyone open the eyes of the blind. We've never seen anyone open the ears of the deaf or raise those who could not walk. We've never seen anyone say to the wind, Hush! And it stops. Or to the waves. And they chill. We've never seen anybody say to a demon, Get out of him. And the demon responds. We've never, never heard anybody preach to us the way that he does. That he is Lord of the Sabbath. That it was his idea to begin with. And he certainly can tell us how it's supposed to work. We've never seen anybody hand out fish and loaves to 20,000 people. And they all ate till they couldn't eat anymore and they were stuffed. And they probably filled their backpacks and pockets and everything that they had to hang on to for the next day's meal. And I'm getting tired of lugging around my basket. I don't need any more convincing. He said that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Peter, speaking up for the twelve, said you are the Christ. The Son of God. Who do you say that He is? You are the Christ, the Son of God. And in this answer and in Jesus' subsequent teaching, there are three truths that must be evident in the lives of all believers. First, let's look at the commitment of discipleship. What must one believe in order to be a true follower of Jesus Christ? We're told we must believe that He is the Christ of God. You know, Christ is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew title Messiah, and it means anointed one. It is not His last name. It is His title. 
And it's important what we recognize and understand that because we use the name Jesus Christ so regularly and often that even those who use his name in vain, I think sometimes they think that Christ was his last name. He is Jesus the Christ. He is Jesus the Messiah. He is Jesus the Anointed One, Chosen One of God. He is Jesus the Savior of the world. He is Jesus the Redeemer. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the Mighty God. He's the Everlasting Father. He's a Wonderful Counselor. He is Jesus the Christ. See, and, and by saying that, in Matthew's account, which we'll see in a minute, Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed that truth to you, but my Father who is in heaven. To understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world is not something that spiritually dead people can come up with on their own. It is only something that God can reveal to those who are seeking God. And by His grace through faith, we come to recognize who He is. See, to be a genuine disciple, we must believe that He is the Christ of God. See, the Jews believed that one day a superhuman being would come into the world. They believed from the time of David that this one would come and regather God's earthly people from the four corners of the world. And that he would make Jerusalem the center of the world, establishing the perfect reign of God on earth. You know, Peter and the disciples didn't understand all the ramifications of the Messiah's coming, but they had the big picture. And the big picture was that one day God would send his anointed one, his chosen one, his redeemer, his savior, his Messiah. And they were all waiting and watching for him. If you remember, Simeon said, you know what? God promised that he wouldn't take me home until I saw his anointed one. And he held Jesus in his arms and said, I can now depart in peace. You have kept your promise, God, as you always do. I have seen the consolation of Israel. See, Peter was the only one who said it, but they all nodded in affirmation that Jesus was the long-awaited, God-given hope of salvation and their deliverer. Though some time had passed, as I mentioned, since the feeding of the multitudes, Luke's impression of it is because there are seven events that he doesn't record in his gospel account that are recorded in Mark, for example. He doesn't record them. He moves right from the feeding of the multitudes to the confession or profession of faith. That Luke gives the implication that that clinched the deal for them. There was no more that they needed to see. The evidence was plenty, and they have now acted upon it. You are the Christ. What we think of Jesus is everything. Acceptance or rejection of Him makes all the difference. We must understand that He is God's chosen one. There's no other way. There's nobody else. There's no other religious system. There's no other belief system that Jesus is the chosen one of God. He is the anointed one. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. There is no other way to heaven but through Him. We must believe that and understand that. We must believe that He was crucified and buried and rose again, and He did so for our sins, your sin and mine, that He paid that price. That was God's plan to reconcile fallen humanity back to Himself. We must believe that he now reigns in heaven and that one day he will judge every human who has ever lived. And to be there with him, we must believe this. We must rest our lives on this. Who do you say that I am? You must be in a position to answer that question definitively for you. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ of God. You're the Savior of the world. You're my Redeemer. You're my Savior. You're my Lord. And you're my God. Who do you say I am? Is a question every person must personally answer and believe for himself or herself. As we've read through those who have an interest in being members of this church... The reason that we do it is because we want to see and hear a very clear and definitive understanding on your part who Jesus is to you. 
It's so exciting to see the affirmations. Jesus is my Savior. I came to trust Him at such and such a time. I repented of my sin and I turned to God and I trusted in Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that He he was raised from the dead and that He lives today and He offers life to those who come to Him. Such a blessing to read those accounts, to recognize and understand who Jesus is as a revelation from the very throne room of heaven, from God the Father Himself to those who seek Him and will never be disappointed. You know, but there's more than just believing that Jesus is the Savior of God. One must also believe in the necessity of His death and His resurrection. We must believe in the cross. Notice Jesus said, but he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. And we think, well, wait a minute. Aren't we to go into all the world and tell people that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world? The anointed one and chosen one of God. And here they confess that you are the Christ. You're the Savior, the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus said, don't go tell anybody this. Why? And this is why it's so important to study Scripture in context. The reason that he said, don't go tell anyone, and for those who would take things out of context, go, oh, you know what, it's a private thing between me and and, and my Savior, and you know what, I'm not going to go tell anybody. It's like, well, wait, where'd you get that? Well, right here, this is the verse I use as, you know, the, the proof text that I use to not share my faith with anyone. That's not what he's saying. He was saying to them, don't go tell anybody yet. And why? Because they didn't understand what was about to take place. Because we're told in the gospel accounts that from that moment on, he began to tell them that he must go into Jerusalem and that he would be crucified, that he will die, he will suffer, and he will be raised again from the dead. He explained to them what they did not understand. They were looking for a ruler to come and establish God's kingdom here on earth. That's why they were always arguing about, hey, are we going to sit at your right or your left? You're going to establish your kingdom. Let's go and, you know, let's, let's start knocking some heads together. Let's throw Rome out. Yay, our Redeemer is here. And he said, no, you don't get it. Not this time. Next time. See, we have the, the, the hindsight of Scripture and the entirety of the Word of God to look at and say, why didn't they get it? But you've got to understand, the only frame of reference that they had was the Old Testament that said one day God's Messiah, Savior, would come. He'd establish God's kingdom on earth. They were waiting for that day. They had been oppressed for generations, for centuries. And finally, the Messiah is here. They can't wait for Him to establish His kingdom. And, and, and here it goes. And He said, no. He said, but saying to them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. The gospel message. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What must you believe to be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? You must believe that He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And you must also believe that He is the one who died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, we notice the gospel message as Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. So it's pretty evident by this time they recognize they should go around and tell everybody what God's plan is. He said, Which I preach to you, which you also received, and which you also now stand. Isn't that the way it works? I preach the message, you received it, And now you stand firm on the gospel, the foundation. What's the foundation? He says, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the word of God. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to scripture. And he appeared to to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom who remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or died since that appearance. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles. And last of all, as if it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What is it that we're to believe? We're to believe that we're all sinners, that none of us are righteous, no, not one. We're to believe that Jesus Christ is God's anointed one, His chosen one, His Savior, who has come into the world. We're to believe that He died on the cross according to the promise of God, and that He rose again from the dead, and we are to receive Him as our Lord and Savior for our penalty of sin and death. 
Who is he to you? See, one cannot be saved believing anything less. I've delivered to you of first importance. There is nothing more important in your life than to believe that Jesus is the Savior of God. To believe that there is no other way to heaven. To believe that He died for your sins. To believe that He rose again from the dead. That is the message of the gospel. That is the good news. And the good news is this. That there's nothing you and I can do but to trust in Him. To fully place our faith and trust in Him. And why was this so important to understand? Why is it important for us to understand today? Turn to Matthew's account of the same event that we see recorded in Luke where we find some additional details that gives added clarity as to what is going on. Notice in Matthew 16, starting with verse 13, we read these words and it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some said, They're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, blessed are you. And I want you to understand, Jesus said, you're right. For those who say Jesus never claimed to be God, that's just a label that, you know, the Christian church slapped on him. Wait a minute. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon and Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he also said upon this rock, this profession of faith, I will build my church. That is the foundation of the church today. And the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And here's why. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elder and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He must be raised up on the third day. And notice this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter. Oh. How many can relate? <laughs> Peter's like my, my role model for, you know, uh, of, my, of my Christian walk. It's like, but God, that's not how I have it planned. It's like, you know, and, and I read this and I laugh and I don't go to God. I don't rebuke him. That's, how crazy can you be? It's like, but, but Lord, I, I don't have cancer in my plans this year. What are you thinking? Oh, well, hang on a second. Wait a minute. You're God. I'm not. I don't know what I'm talking about half the time, most of the time, all the time. The only time I know what I'm talking about is when I'm just sharing exactly what the Word of God has to say because I'm not saying that it's God and He knows always what He's doing. He said, but he, he said he began to rebuke him and said, God forbid it, Lord. Why? Because he didn't like this plan. He liked to knock heads together, get Rome out, establish your kingdom, let's all participate, and let's do that plan. He liked that plan. But notice what he said. Jesus turned to him and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And then we'll pick up the account back in Luke. But I want you to notice something. Anyone who tells us anything other than Jesus is the Christ, the Savior... Anyone who says anything other than the only way to be forgiven by God is by trusting in Jesus, His death on the cross, and in His resurrection and receiving Him as your Savior, anyone who tells us anything else than that plan of God is of the devil and not of God. And He said very clearly, get behind me, Satan. This is not God's plan. This is the devil's plan to try to derail what God has done to destroy the works of the devil and the devil himself. This is the only way you and I can come to eternal life. And any other plan is not a gospel or good news at all. As, as, uh, as Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he said, If anybody comes with any other gospel, it is no gospel at all. There's no good news in it because you will be damned in your sins and the consequences for your sins will be carried out in your life. Any other plan but that one is not of God. Period. Any effort to minimize the absolute necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf is not of God. And why is this so important? I'll tell you why. There's a recent L.A. Times article entitled, Spiritual Blend Appeals to People of Many Faiths. Let me read you a slight excerpt. When he was growing up in a Christian home, Cameron Dye, a Los Angeles actor and musician, was bothered by the notion that Christians were the only ones going to heaven. 
Now in his early 40s, Dai accepts other religions as well. What they all have in common is that there is a God. That God is within me and you and you and you and everyone, he said. Honor that within yourself and everyone else and the world would be a grand place. It would be what I perceive heaven to be. He is comfortable stepping into any house of worship. The other day he said he sat quietly for 45 minutes in a Hindu temple in the city to hear God and to connect. I don't have a religion, but I have a faith, he said. Faith is within me, and I call upon it. My question for that man is, well, what does your faith rest upon? All faith must rest upon an object. Does your faith rest upon your own understanding? Well, the Bible says, don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, God, and he'll set your path straight. The Bible says it's a way that seems right to men, but the end is destruction. You know, the Bible has much to say about that type of a philosophy of living. You know, I have faith. Well, but faith in what? Faith must always rest upon an object. The object of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrection, resurrected. The object of the Christian faith is the Word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But it, but it goes on and it says, George Barna, the president of the Barna Research Group says Christians have increasingly adopted spiritual views from Islam, secular humanism, the Eastern religions, and other sources. In a nationwide poll of a thousand adults in September, one in ten or ten percent of born-again Christians who believe salvation is based solely on confession of sins and faith in Jesus Christ said they believed in reincarnation, which violates the clear teaching of Scripture. It is appointed for man to die once. And then comes judgment. Nearly one in three persons, 33%, claimed it is possible to communicate with the dead. Even though the Lord clearly said that not only is it not possible, but we should not even try. Because there are deceptive demons who disguise themselves as angels of light in order to deceive those with the information that they have to share. We must go back to the clear teaching of Scripture. Half said they believed a person could earn his salvation based on good works without accepting Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection. How is that possible? I've got one theory. I believe it's simply because of ignorance of Scripture. It's possible because those who profess to be Christians many times have never come to true saving faith. And those who have are ignorant of spiritual truth because they don't spend enough time in God's Word. There is no excuse for that type of ignorance in God's family because God has revealed all we need to know about Him and such nonsense as this. What's interesting is many who claim to be atheists and agnostics also harbored paradoxical beliefs. Half of them said they believed that everyone had a soul, that heaven and hell existed, that there was life after death. One in eight atheists and agnostics in the poll believed that accepting Jesus Christ as Savior probably would make life after death possible. (laughs) Well, it just goes to show you that there could be a clear understanding of the gospel message without a... without an acceptance of it in one's life. I personally know people that I have shared with over the years that clearly understand they must confess their sins and trust in Christ, His death and His resurrection to be forgiven by God. And they they clearly understand it. They could share the salvation story, gospel message with others. They just have never embraced Him themselves. They have never confessed their sins. They have never trusted in Christ. They have heard the message, but it's, it's of no interest to them and to their eternal damnation as well. People who come up with their own kind of spiritual mix, the article goes on to say, do not have to contend with the constraints and demands of major religions. The new trend appeals because people can pick the pieces that make them feel good without having to make any changes. Now let us compare this 
to what Jesus has to say as we put this message together. Compare this to what Jesus clearly teaches. Peter was blessed because God revealed to him the true identity of Jesus, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. But he said, you must also believe in my death and my resurrection. And they did not understand that at that time, although they would, as it all occurred. And, they, and in fact, Scripture says, and then they would think back to these days and remember what it was that Jesus taught. The commitment of discipleship is that we must believe that he is the Christ. We must believe in the cross and the resurrection. We must accept him personally as our Savior, individually, not collectively, not as a family, not as a church, not as a group, but as an individual. And when one is born again, he becomes a child of God to those who believe in his name. And it is from that foundation, that profession of faith, that then Jesus begins to teach the following, where he says the conditions of discipleship are this. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Contrary to what folks may want to believe, Jesus clearly teaches when we confess Christ, we embrace his dying on the cross, his resurrection for us, and we also accept the reality of a cross for ourselves. The Apostle Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life that I now live as a follower of Jesus Christ, I live by my faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. What he is saying is, is that for those who have trusted in Christ, it is no longer about me. It is no longer about my plans. It is about self-denial. It is about saying, God, even though I don't understand your plans, I'm willing to sacrifice and deny my own plans, my own goals, what I want to see happen, because you know what's best, and I have been crucified with Christ, and I don't even exist, but Christ now lives within me. And the wonderful truth of that is that no matter what happens in your life, we go back to this. You know what? It's not about me anymore. It's not about my goals. It's not about my dreams. It's not about my desires. It's not about how I want to be a part of this growing church and what God wants to do. I'd like to see God develop that property. I'd like to see us reach that community. I'd like to see hundreds and thousands of people come to Christ. But you know what? If God chooses to kill me through cancer and take me home, it's not about my will, my desires, my hopes, my dreams. It's about His plan. And sometimes in life, God uses our death to catapult his plan. And I'm willing to accept that because it's not about me. See, that's what self-denial is all about. It's about saying, I'd like to be part of it. And I've gone to him and said, Lord, I don't think that I'm worthy to be rewarded to be called back into your presence. I just don't. I, I, th- I, you know, I just feel like I haven't done anything near what God wants me to do in this lifetime. And you got to remember that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's a reward to go home to be with our Savior. And I just personally don't believe that I am worthy of such a reward in my life. And I hope I live every day believing that I'm not worthy of such a reward because it's by God's grace through faith that we'll see his presence. But as we look at this, self-denial is on a whole bunch of different levels. You know, some people talk about, oh, you know what, let let us deny ourselves, take up our cross daily. And I always like this, like, oh, what's your cross? And you hear all these interesting answers. You know, my cross is, you know, my job. You know, I got this goofy boss. You know, I got this unfair teacher or coach. Uh, My cross is my mother-in-law. You know, my, my cross is, you know, whatever it is. And they go on and on about what the cross is. But you know what, but a cross results from specific walking in Christ's steps. A cross results in embracing his way of life. You know, we sing, I surrender all, and I ask the question of myself that I ask of you, do we really? Do we really surrender all? Or we just surrender that which, you know, is so big, big, much bigger than us, we can't deal with it, but we'll hang on to these things over here. What do we really surrender? Do we really surrender all? See, a cross results from specifically walking in Christ's steps. It comes from bearing disdain because we're following the narrow way of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. It comes from living out in the business community our faith, 
not cutting corners, not lying, not cheating, uh, you know, in, in the construction industry, you know, not doing jobs for cash. I mean, it comes with, you know, recognizing that we have a responsibility not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, it means to, 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 to remain a virgin if you're single. It means to remain faithful if you're married. It, remain, it means to, to embrace God's principles for living at the disdain of our culture who would make fun and ridicule people for choosing to live that kind of life. It, remain, it, it means telling the truth instead of lying. It means building people up instead of tearing them down. You know, that, that's what it means. It means not gossiping and being mean-spirited and slanderous and vicious. You know, it means denying those selfish urges that come with sin nature and say, you know what, that it's not pleasing to God and I'm not going to do it. See, that's what self-denial means. That's what the cross is all about. It means standing up for Jesus Christ in the marketplace, in our community, in our families, and in our world. It means standing true in difficult circumstances. It means being able to say what Job said, even if he slays me, I'll still trust in him because I love him. Because who is he to me? He is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Savior of the world. He is my Lord and he is my God. See, when living for, when, when we, when living for Christ, we shouldn't be surprised by the fiery darts of the enemy. You know, sometimes our health afflictions as Job's were, were they were attack of the enemy. And yet I recognize that it only happened because God allowed them to happen. And if this cancer that I'm dealing with is an attack of the enemy and God has allowed it, then God will make a mockery of his foolishness one way or the other and that his word will be promoted and people will come to know Christ through this circumstance of life and through your circumstance of life as well because it's not about me or you. It's about him and his plans for our life and for his kingdom. See, when, when, when God takes us to a new spiritual level, don't be surprised when up pops a new devil. See, I don't consider the sufferings of this lifetime to be worthy compared to the glory that he has to reveal. And I just challenge you to keep your eyes on Jesus and your mind in his word and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. For the temporary sufferings of this lifetime are not worthy to be put in the same sentence or category to the glory that's to be revealed. Not even close. Don't even bring it up. Don't even mention it. Discipleship requires self-denial. It requires personal sacrifice for God's kingdom and His purposes. And it also requires submission. Submission to what? To following Him. Pick up your cross daily, deny yourself, and you follow me. At the end of the Gospel of John, you'll recall the, the conversation that's going on between Peter and Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Tend my sheep, tend my flock, you know, follow me. And Peter got all hung up. But, but what about this guy? What about John? What, what's, what's, what's he supposed to do? And Jesus clearly told him, you follow me. My plan for John is my plan for John, but you follow me. Are you following Jesus? Are you obedient in every area of life? Are you surrendering everything to him? Are you conformed in any way to this world when you know you're not to be conformed but be transformed? Are you compromising in any area of life? If so, confess that sin before God, turn from it, and we know that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. And now, you follow him. I'll tell you what. The last 25 years of my life following Jesus have been the most fulfilling, wonderful, purposeful, incredible years that I have ever lived on this earth. And I trade none of them for anything this world has to offer. And the reason for it is very simple. Notice what the consequences of discipleship are. Whoever wishes to lose his life or save his life shall lose it. 
Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And what he's saying is, what are you you saving your life for? Yourself? Your goals? Your plans? Your desires? Your dreams? For what? How many of our dreams, desires, and goals have been shattered and just blown up? Because God hasn't had another plan for us. We keep putting off till tomorrow what we're going to do and how we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And you know what? The Bible says, don't even be anxious for tomorrow, for each day has enough trouble of its own. We're to redeem the time wisely. We better live in the moment, in the present, because it's not guaranteed that we'll have tomorrow. So stop talking about all the things you're going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and five years from now and start living for Jesus today. Start following Him today. Stop saving your life for yourself, but lose your life for His sake. He goes on and says, you know, and stop, you know, look at this, stop trying to achieve your own goals. Look in, in verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself and forfeits himself? What is the profit in all that? That lies continued. Oh, you know, the, the, the parable, hey, you know, I did this, I did that, I stored my barns, I did all these things, and, you know, I'm all set for tomorrow, and, and, and God said, you fool. For tonight, your very soul is required of you. What are you waiting for? Well, I'll think about the gospel later. I'm busy right now planning my career. I'll think about the gospel later. I'm busy now building my empire, my business, my net worth, my portfolio. I'll think of the gospel later because, you know, death is way, way in the future for me. It's not something I need to think about today. And all of a sudden, today is the day. And how foolish you are not considering the claims of Christ. Who is Jesus? He says, stop achieving your own goals because you can gain the whole world, but if you go to hell, what good is it going to do you? What's interesting is 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, about the year 1000, officials of the Emperor Otto opened the great king's tomb where in addition to incredible treasures, they saw an amazing sight. Listen to this. The skeletal remains of King Charlemagne seated on a throne, his crown still on his skull, a copy of the Gospels laying in his lap with his bony finger resting on the text, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? I hope... For their sake, those who made this discovery also trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. The point is simple. There's nothing, nothing can compensate for the loss of your eternal destiny in heaven. Nothing. And finally, we are to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. As Paul wrote to Romans, it's a follow-up of what Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. There's no question that the Word of God teaches that we are to go out and proclaim the excellency of him who has called us from darkness to light. There is no question in the Word of God that we are going to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What is it that he has commanded of us? That we repent of our sin and that we trust in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection on our behalf as our Savior. He says that one day he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we will see this as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, his eyewitness account of the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. In closing, one simple question, who do you say Jesus is? Is he only a prophet? Is he merely a great moral teacher? Or is he the Messiah, God's Son, the Savior and King? And more importantly is, is he your Savior? It doesn't matter what anybody else says, but who do you say that I am? Let us pray. Father, I just pray that those who are hearing your voice are doing so because you have opened their ears and you have prepared their hearts for this truth. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that is not sure of that relationship with you, that they would just turn from sin right here, right now. That they would believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, the Messiah the only hope of the world, for there's no other name that's been given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. 
that they would believe in your cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, the death, His death on our behalf, and His resurrection from the dead. For there is nothing else, it is of utmost importance, that Jesus Christ died and He rose again, according to the promises of God. Our Father, we love You, we thank You, because it is You, you are the one who has revealed to us the true identity of Jesus Christ, that He is your Savior, and I thank God and I praise you that he is my Savior and all who have trusted in him that he is their Savior as well. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen.